Have you ever been creeped out when you're talking about a certain thing next to your phone and then soon after you start seeing ads for that thing? There's a reason for that. They're being shown to you by algorithms. But whilst these pieces of code may seem godlike, the question is, are they God? Welcome to Science of the Times Radio. Welcome to another week of Signs of the Times Radio. My name is Daniel Kuberek. It's August, and I have with me one of my co-workers, actually. His name is Ryan Stanton. You, as the audience, may be familiar with Ryan because he actually did his first podcast for us a few weeks ago where he talked with Eddie Hippolyte. How long have you been with us now, Ryan? I think I started in March, the end of March, and I've been working here on and off ever since. Been a little while. We've really appreciated your articles. For those who don't know, Ryan's been working quite a bit in the online space. Actually, his articles are getting a lot of feedback, a lot of people reading through, so it's it's awesome to see that, Ryan. But we're actually talking today about one of the articles that made it into the physical magazine. You chose to talk about big tech and Facebook. I guess my question, Ryan, is how long have you been on Facebook for? Like, How many years has it been since you've joined the platform? Gosh, I was... You know, the moment I turned 13, because it was still, you know, that would have been back a decade ago, 2011, I suppose. No, it would have been 2010. Yeah, the, the moment I turned 13, I was like, I, I got to get on it because everybody was on it. And it was, a you know, the big sort of like, if you weren't on Facebook, did you even exist sort of thing. So, yeah, I've, I look, I've been on it uh, too long. I guess the same sort of thing goes for me, like I joined Facebook because every one of my mates did so when they were in high school, so it was a way to, to chat with all your mates after you came home from school. Facebook, for those who don't know, has been around since, I think it's it's 07, is that correct, Ryan? Yeah, yeah, it, it really sort of technically been around since 04, but then it, it kind of varies when you put it, but like by 08, it was an established thing for the general population that had really exploded in popularity. Yeah, um, sure. Yeah. The first time I heard about any problems around Facebook was actually, I think it was in 2011, when this movie came out called The Social Network with Jesse Eisenberg as as Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook in that movie. And pretty much the movie documents all the legal issues that Facebook had when it was starting out. Didn't really know about any of that stuff until that movie came out. Looking back, it was this sort of innocent, you know, uh, talking to your friends kind of thing that you signed up for in the beginning. How do you think it's sort of changed uh, in the way it's perceived or how has how it changed in the way you perceive it since since you joined on? Yeah, one of the things that has sort of not changed, actually, I think my perception on Facebook has changed and is a lot more negative, generally speaking. But credit where credit's due, the one thing I do still use Facebook for is to connect with friends. It is still one of the easiest ways, particularly through like its messenger and its group chats as sort of the two things I still use to, to connect with friends. But I am at the point where if I go on Facebook on my browser, I actually have a little extension that makes it so the newsfeed does not appear. I do, I do not get the newsfeed. I do not get people's posts. I do not get posts from the pages I've liked because I just do not find anything of substance in that. <laughs> Um, yeah. So you won't know if your your mates are engaged or not? 
look, actually, that is that is particularly true. That is something that multiple times I've friends have broken up, friends have gotten engaged, friends have you know changed sort of things, and I haven't necessarily noticed. We actually had some of our friends; they they got engaged, and we were having a, a Zoom catch up with a lot of people last Saturday, and you know. A lot of people were like, congratulations. And I was like, congratulations on what? And she showed me the ring and it was like, oh, my goodness, first time hearing about it. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, indeed, I do sometimes miss out on those things. But I think the trade-off for my sanity is worth it in the end. It's funny because you're not the only one who does this sort of thing. Like I remember a few years back, I was talking to the owner of the gym that I was going to, and the dude had this like extension that he installed on his browser which blocked everything that was to do with the kardashians on his, in his <laughs> facebook feed so it seems like people are really cautiously approaching facebook well more recently or at least in the circles that i've been in now i guess the question is why is that has has something happened that has broken people's trust with facebook well look i don't think it's just something i think it's a culmination of Many things. I, I think ultimately, and this has been true for Facebook since very early on, but it's something that only pe- people are really particularly coming around to in the past few years, especially in, in since, you know, the past five years, I would really say since 2016, it feels like, is that, you know, Facebook does not care about you. And look, that that sounds harsh, that sounds rough, but like it is the reality of the situation. And I think more and more people are realizing that and sort of understanding that it does not have their best interests at heart. Yeah. So what happened exactly? Like, I mean, we actually had an article a few years ago that I actually wrote, which is you are being watched. And it, and it discusses an event in 2016 when a whole bunch of people's data on Facebook was leaked. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened there? What was that leak? How did that happen? Here's the thing, right? And here's, here's the, really, the really interesting thing, right? Like, is that, that that data was not leaked necessarily. What Facebook does is it sells your data. And, and the Cambridge Analytica scandal was that they were, they were hired for political parties, and in order to like help them in their their elections sort of thing for the the leave campaign in Brexit was one of the big sort of thing and also providing assistance to the presidential campaigns for uh, Republican U.S. Senator Ted Cruz and former U.S. President Donald Trump in their then presidential campaign and what they did was Cambridge Analytica was a consulting firm so they were consulting for these people and what they did was they bought personal data on people from Facebook and used it in an attempt to sort of reach people and and sway sway people in these elections to vote for the people that they had been hired to help. And yeah, so it, it was a misuse of the data as well. Like it wasn't entirely above board, right? There, there were aspects of it that were, were sort of, we were using apps in ways that sort of weren't anticipated to be harvesting this data from Facebook. But like ultimately it wasn't necessarily so much like a hack as just using Facebook's platforms in the ways that Facebook generally intends, but just taking a little it a little bit further than they intend. It's a really interesting example because it highlights the ways in which Facebook in particular, and I we're talking a lot about Facebook, but this holds true for other platforms. It 
doesn't treat us as users. It treats us as the, the product, right? Like we use these platforms for free and we go, oh, it's a great deal. Like how are they making money off of us giving us this product for free? And that's because in exchange for giving us this product for free, we are giving them their product that then they can use to make money, which is the data that we provide for them and the, the, the eyes, the attention that we give them on the platform that they can then turn around and give to advertisers and say, hey, here, look, we have, you know, billions of people looking at our newsfeed. You can, you can chuck your ads in there and get billions of eyeballs on them if you just pay us. And then, you know, we can target those ads to specific people because they've given us all this data. So you want 20-something females who are into, like, jogging and yoga to advertise your health and lifestyle business? We can put those specific eyeballs on your ads. There was a documentary that came out on Netflix last year called The Social Dilemma, which you actually haven't seen because we've discussed this before, and yet everything that you just mentioned is in that documentary. I think the, one of the most interesting parts of the documentary is that they they actually get former employees of these social media companies, these big tech companies, to come on and, and explain how it all worked. And one of the most intriguing parts of the Facebook part of it was they got a former Facebook executive. His name was Tim Kendall, and then he became a former president of, of Pinterest. And he pretty much, he's he was in charge of, you know, manipulating people because the person is the product. Like, that's literally one line he used in the documentary. Mm. Now, as shocking as it is watching that documentary, because it was, I watched it and felt very confronted by the fact that I am being manipulated by my social media. You know, the day passed and then I got on with my life and Facebook was still a part of it. Do you think that people are trading off their privacy and just settling for this stuff without giving it too much thought? Is there danger in that? I definitely think that it is a it is a dilemma, right? It's the the, the social dilemma, and yeah, I'm I'm not familiar with the film, but part part of why I didn't end up watching it was a lot of the concepts presented are sort of kind of concepts I'm I'm familiar with, and I think it, it really highlights. I, I, I'm not sure what percentage of people are aware of these issues and what percentage aren't. I would like to think a lot of people are informed about them, right? But ultimately, whether whether they're informed or not, kind of is the the moot point to an extent, right? Because you know, I like me and you are both both aware of these dilemmas, and we continue to use these platforms. And that's that's what the real the real dilemma is, the real trouble. Whether you're informed or not, these platforms are big enough and powerful enough that it can become really quite difficult to extricate yourself from them because they really are have integrated themselves as a core part of our life for better and worse. Um, because make no mistake, there is some betters and there is definitely some worses there. It really is a problem. One of my lecturers at university, she is very much critical of this big tech sort of stuff and she, she has published a book about Amazon and the, the way that they they sort of work on these things. Her, her name is Benedetta Barini. She's wonderful. I would I would recommend reading her, her work. It's great. She describes these these companies: Amazon, Facebook, Google, Apple, and Microsoft. Those are the big five that sort of people talk about when they talk about this. They're known as uh, GAFAM, GAFAM. These companies. She describes them as 
digital lords in that, right? Like they are less companies at this point. You can choose to sort of opt in and opt out of and choose to take our business elsewhere and more akin to, you know, feudal lords, medieval lords who sort of wield this vast amount of power and control over our lives that we really can't extricate ourselves from. We really can't uh, get, get out from under that power because it is such a all-consuming aspect of parts of our lives, you know. And, and so she sort of says, right, to me, hey, I had a conversation with her once, like it, during the height of the pandemic last year about like, I, I feel bad about using Amazon Prime to get, you know, deliveries to me because Amazon has a long documented history of exploitation of its workers and, you know, mistreatment of its workers. All the while, you know, its its creator literally says, hey, I have so much money, I don't know what to do with it, so I'm going to go to space, which is <laughs> another article you can look forward to at some point, promise. Um, but, like, she said, right, you know, even despite all these issues, you shouldn't even necessarily feel too bad about using these platforms at the moment because what is the alternative, right? Like, especially in the height of the pandemic, I want to get something delivered to me. Like Amazon is probably the way I have to go without having to a like the exorbitant prices of other people who are, you know, in turn jacking them up beyond what is reasonable. And, you know, that doesn't mean we should just accept the status quo as it is at the moment, but it highlights the, 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 the fact of the dilemma being, well, what is the alternative? And, and the, the question that we really need to ask ourselves is, how do we change this situation? How do we get to a better alternative or, or fix these platforms that we have? Absolutely. The discussion there is a very important part of changing the world. Now, it's really interesting that you mentioned about the evil overlords thing, because I think a key part of all of this is understanding what an algorithm is. Now, I think if you watch The Social Dilemma, you'll realize that it's an automated process, this sort of artificial intelligence, I guess, these coding processes, they just learn to understand you better, to target you content. Now, I think algorithms have been discussed quite a bit lately. I mean, every single social media platform has algorithms to... I guess, on an innocent level to deliver better content that'll be more interesting to you, but then also more nefariously to target ads at you and get to understand you better to sell you products. Like you said, you are we are the products that are being sold in some instances as far as our own data and stuff. Now, algorithms, one of the movies that has come out recently is Space Jam, A New Legacy, where the bad guy in that movie is an algorithm. Can you just explain why an algorithm is sort of being seen as this godlike kind of evil. Yeah, so there's there's a lot to unpack with algorithms. We could we could do an entire episode on them themselves, I think. But I think one of the key sort of things is Frank Pascale, another sort of scholar, describes these algorithms as a black box. In the you know, in a black box we often think of in terms of, you know, plane crashes, recording, you know, what's what's happened sort of thing. But he's referring to it to an extent to that, but also in the the other way of like a a machine or, you know, process or something where these these steps that make it function and make it work are unknown to us. Data goes in, something happens in the in this black box that is you know is black and closed to us data comes out in a different form. That's like what many of these algorithms 
sort of work on the 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 techniques that are used to organize your news feed or your Twitter feed or the Google search are unknown to us. We we have ideas about how they might work and what things might work. There's the whole industry of you know search engine optimization, which is something I do a bit of for science, sort of working on making your results appear good in Google based on what we know about their algorithm. But ultimately, the code of their algorithms, nobody except them knows. So there's a great there's a great deal of mystery and and lack of transparency about what these things which have such a vast effect on our lives are like and how they function. And there are multiple issues with this. First of all, algorithms are often portrayed as sort of, you know, the people lean on the the machine process of it, you know, in in defense of it. It is it is uh, data, it is cold, it is unthinking, it is without bias, right? Because it is it is just the, the computer code and it will it will give the same result every time and so you, it can't be swayed by by human biases. And the problem with this logic that people people often present, this this logic and the problem with it is that it it ignores the fact that these algorithms are written by humans and humans, the humans who are writing these algorithms still have human biases and human, human, human flaws and human failings and human issues. And as a result, right, like that there's a lot of talk in on a lot of topics. One such topic being like, can algorithms be, you know, potentially racist is something which a lot of, a lot of discussion is about because like, Obviously, the algorithm itself isn't, and obviously people at Google and Facebook and Twitter making them deliberately sort of racist, right? But if the people who are working on them don't necessarily have a full experience or understanding of these issues, sometimes it can lead to potentially, you know, practices which sort of do work to represent, you know, certain races more than others. There was a recent controversy a little while ago with Twitter, right? Twitter, when it shows you photos, if a photo is too big, it's sort of cropped. Right. And it was shown, it, it was demonstrably shown by sort of multiple people on the platform at multiple times. It was a whole trending issue that when it crops it right, it will always prioritize white faces no matter what. Like you, you take, you take a photo that has a white face and a black face in it, or, you know, an Asian face or, you know, any, any number of people of color sort of thing. And it will sort of always prioritize the white face, even a photo where there is like only a black face in it. Uh, sometimes with like surprising amount of regularity, it would sort of highlight the background of the image. And that's, that's not an example that it necessarily has a massive impact on, on, you know, anything right but it is just a small example of the ways in which these algorithms can sort of be imperfect and work to imperfectly represent things and so so that's one of the big big problems of them right yeah now you just mentioned there that it's it's being described as godlike and in part of that is because of its mystery now i mean there's a few you know examples of popular media recently that i can list off where the tech and the algorithms are also described as godlike. One of them is this TV show called Person of Interest, which shows this machine which is surveilling all of humanity in, in particular in New York, or a, a TV show recently called Westworld, which again is all about tapping into everybody's data. Why, why has this idea become so popular that media or tech or, you know, surveillance systems are godlike and you know, you mentioned there that it's in part it's because it's mysterious. 
what are the similarities and differences with our Christian understanding of God? Is God this mysterious force that works for our detriment rather than for our good? Like, what are the similarities and differences there? I, I think it's important to understand the perception of these algorithms as, as, as God, like, kind of puts a bow on a lot of the issues we've been discussing. So I think, I think it's worth explaining why we do get this perception, right? And it, it's because they are eerily, eerily close to that already. We, we talk about digital lords, I, I sort of mentioned, right? But it's like they are even beyond just sort of like ruling about us. They do know so much about us. And this comes back to the thing we were discussing in the first place of the ways these platforms view us as products, as commodities, as, as data to be farmed. And they have so much data on us. The, the, the mind boggles, right? Like, a lot of the time people talk about, you know, like, oh, my phone is listening to me without consent because, you know, I was thinking about this thing and I, I sort of mentioned it in a conversation once. Next thing I know, Google Google shows it, right? To, to an extent, there's, there's that possibility, sure. But, like, the scary reality then, the phone listening to us all the time, is these phones and these algorithms and these products having so much data on us and knowing so much about us that they can predict sort of what we might ultimately crave in the future or want in the future or discuss in the future. And that sort of is the point that we are at to a certain extent at, at times at the moment. You know, you know, we're not we're not quite in the, the Westworld realm of things where these algorithms can literally predict everything that we are going to do and sort of the, the implication that as a result we have no free will because they are controlling every aspect of our life sort of thing. But, you know... Our, our phones, it's, I have an Apple phone and it, it, it can be sort of eerie sometimes. I, I'm studying podcasts, right, for a PhD. And as a result, when I go for a walk, I chuck on a different podcast episode in sort of the area that I'm looking at and I take some notes to see if it'll be a good one to study. I've done that for a couple of weeks now. And yesterday when I went for a walk, right, I chucked on a podcast and before I even up my, opened up my notes app, Siri was like, do you want to open up your notes app? You know, open up this note that you've been taking notes on the podcast. Like, that's a small example. But, you know, you know, it's reproduced on bigger sort of scales of, you know, oh, it's 7.30. You haven't made dinner yet. Here's some great Uber restaurants near you. Like, what do you want to order? You know, or like, oh, you've gone to work. You're finishing up work. Here's the maps route to get home with the least traffic, right? Like, these algorithms are increasingly understanding so much about our lives and sort of working to anticipate and, and work for us in these regards. And yes, there's an amount of convenience in that. It comes back to the dilemma of what are we thinking? What are we sacrificing to give this, this knowledge and this data to them? And I, I think that sacrifice, right, is also where it comes down to the sort of potential religious aspect and the spiritual aspect, right? Because some people have the perception of, you know, God or, you know, whatever higher power you might believe in. For me, it is, you know, God, as he's sort of described in the Bible. Some people have perception of, of them as a almost dictatorial God, you know, that they are like these algorithms. They know everything, they predict everything, and they control everything about our lives. And they, and they demand all these things from us. And I think... That is where that that is where the mistake comes in. Like these these algorithms are godlike in the sense of 
that perception of God. But but I would argue that that isn't the inaccurate perception of God and who God really is if you sort of study the Bible and take a look at who his character is and what, what, what they are like. Well, what is God really like? You kind of end off your article with this awesome line, which is like, big tech may not be your friend, but God can be. Now, I think that's very interesting because we look at why do people join Facebook? Well, it's connection. Like people are looking to connect and have those meaningful interactions with other people. How is God like a friend? And how is that different to to this impersonal dictatorial view we can have of God? Well, I think one of the biggest ones, right, the, the, the biggest point is that God does not control us, right? You know, they, these algorithms are, as mentioned, very, like, focused on gathering our data and utilizing it and swaying us and influencing us, right? And that the Bible very much tells us that God he wants to have a relationship with us and, and wants to connect with us and wants to provide the benefits that a relationship with him might, but he will never force that upon there's, there's a verse in Revelation that uh, God likens his desire for a relationship to a visitor popping by the house here. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. Uh, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. If you want, you're welcome to just not answer that door. Like God provides us with that option and God God allows us to to make that choice and he will not force himself in. He will not pick the lock and open the door and be like, all right, what are we having for dinner? Which is something that these platforms do do. One thing that we haven't touched on is Facebook's shadow profile, which is basically like, even if you're not on Facebook, they are collecting data on you from the sites you visit that have Facebook add-ons. You know, they, they, they recognize your computer's address sort of thing, and they, they recognize you in images of friends and sort of things. Even if you're not on these platforms, they are taking these all this data about you and collating it still. You, you don't have a choice in the matter short of getting off the internet. Mm. God, God is not like that, right? Like, there's there's these freedom to to choose, and, and I would say one of the other big things, sort of, is that when, when we do have a relationship with him and when we do speak to him, you know, God is all-knowing, right? Like, that's that's one of the beliefs. And sort of the concern might be, well, what's he doing with that data? <laughs> you know, what's he doing with everything he knows about us? Big tech knows everything about us and they can be misusing it. How, how, how can we trust God? And God provides reassurance in the Bible that, you know, A, like, that is not really a problem when you take into account the idea of freedom of choice, right? Like he's never going to force any of these things he knows about us or for force anything upon us. But then also, even further than that, there, there's there's verses which sort of work to reassure us about these matters. God in the Old Testament <clears throat> is speaking to his people. They have been having a tough time. They've been driven into exile, I believe, at this, this point. And God uses the knowledge, right, that he, he has of everything to reassure them. He, he tells them, you know, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to make things easy for us all the time. But he reassures us that ultimately what he has is our best interests at heart. And I think that's an important thing to take take away from this sort of thing. And when we when we look at this as like potentially having a relationship with him and sort of viewing him as a friend, right? 
is that sure there may be ups and downs in our relationship and sure there may be things which seem tough to us or we might disagree with but it is abundantly clear that he has our best interests at heart you know these platforms do not and it is it is very clear by the fact part of why we know all this stuff about it is not because they've even said this stuff it is because of you know whistleblowers and people who have left the companies and then rallied against the cambridge analytics scandal we would not have known about that were it not for a couple of people that sort of, you know, were like, hey, this is wrong. Maybe we should talk to the media about it, you know, at great personal risk. Or, you know, the person you were talking about from The Social Dilemma who sort of left the company and is now in a place where they're like, all right, yeah, no, it's time we had a serious conversation about <laughs> what these places prioritize. That's not a thing we need to worry about with, with God, according to the way the Bible talks about it. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome point there to finish off on. Big tech may not be your friend, but God can be. So thanks so much, Ryan, for for joining us on Signs of the Times Radio. Now, if you want to read Ryan's article, which also goes into quite a bit of depth on this issue, it's online on our website at signsofthetimes.org.au, or it's also in the physical magazine if you want to get that. So just jump on and subscribe on the website. But in the meantime, thanks so much, Ryan, hopefully we'll get you Thank on you. again in the future. Yeah, look, I, I'd love to. Like I mentioned, there may be, may be a space article coming in the future. We could uh, potentially talk about that issue as well. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au in Australia or signsofthetimes.org.nz in New Zealand.